This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that the average home price in Canada jumped more than 30%, 30 in the month of March compared to the year before? The pandemic has actually made the issue of housing affordability much worse. Maybe you've been reading about it at globalnews.ca. There's a new series that has been undertaken called Priced Out. It's a three-part series on housing affordability challenges for young people. We're going to talk more about it now with Anne Gaviola, who's a senior digital broadcast journalist at Global News. Anne, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. I could talk about this um, forever. You know what? The thing is, you have no shortage of examples you can use, right? Like you certainly had some people in in that initial story where their stories are heartbreaking, but I fear all too common, it sounds like. That's right. And uh, so this particular series focuses on millennials who are priced out. And whether you, you know, your definition of millennials is 20 ages, 25 to 35 or 25 to 40, it's young people who are uh, increasingly feeling shut out of, of what's happening uh, in housing markets across Canada and certainly some of the, the major ones. Um, and, you know, this is uh, an interesting time to be kind of looking at all of this uh, because of, you know, you, sorry, because of what is happening, um, it, it kind of defies expectations. I've been covering housing markets for some time. And um, at the onset of the pandemic, I remember our national housing agency predicted that home prices would drop some 18%. Fast forward to today, and it has just defied expectations. Who could have predicted uh, that this would happen? And a lot of this has to do with kind of the split fortunes aspect of this particular economic downturn. Yeah, it, you're right. It was totally unpredictable to watch this unfold. Uh, now, I understand there are some kind of tougher mortgage stress test rules that are set to begin, right, on June 1st? That's right. So there was some consultation, but they've, they're have they going to go ahead uh, with that. And uh, so what that has done, actually, uh, according to housing analysts that I spoke to, is it actually increased the pace of activity for you know people who wanted to get in and were maybe had a longer time horizon for getting in, but now they're going to be kind of rushing to get in ahead of those June 1st uh, new tougher stress test rules, which effectively reduce affordability by about 5%. Now, the hope is, though, that eventually these are going to start um, you know taming prices over the longer term. So a few months out, a few years out from here. So, Anne, when you looked at this then, is this a problem right across the country? Um, it used to be when I talked about housing markets, it was mostly, you know, the, the two particularly hot ones, Toronto and Vancouver. And what we've seen during the pandemic, again, defying expectations, is it's spread. It's spread to areas, you know, beyond just driving distance from these two major centers and, and also other places. I mean, Hamilton, Ontario, now one of the least affordable places uh, in the country, and even, you know, like Woodstock, Ontario, Halifax, Moncton, cities that I wouldn't normally mention associated with red hot housing prices. 
And so how are millennials dealing with this? I know you spoke to quite a few of them who were who thought they were ready to get into the market and then this happened. Right. And I do feel for them because it is a timing thing. Um, and they have, by all accounts, kind of been doing all the right things. They've been saving. They've been increasing their earnings, getting some promotions, and they've been house hunting for a while. And they thought maybe this would be the time that they could get in. And then it, it, um, it, based on what has happened and the absolute kind of takeoff of home prices, and not just that, the ultra competitive situation that has been created. So you have, you would think affordability would be uh, better with these ultra low mortgage rates, but actually what that's done is it's juiced prices. It's created a pretty intense scenario in terms of bidding wars in and around the Vancouver area. You know, we've seen those stories, but even places that you wouldn't normally see that kind of thing, like Calgary. Yeah, the the prices are just crazy. So is there a sense of like what is to come in? I guess it's so hard to predict from what you were saying there. But do, does that generation that wants to buy in, what, what are they feeling? Are they feeling hopeless? Are they going to wait this out? I've been hearing the word disheartening. Um, yeah, in this feeling of, you know, I was so close and now I'm farther than ever before. Maybe it will never happen for me. And I do want to be really careful in terms of, you know, talking about millennials. It's, it's, um, yes. you know, not all millennials. There are the millennial haves and the have nots. And one kind of big predictor of whether or not you'll be able to get into the housing market now and even pre pandemic is whether you get help from your family and whether or not they have been part of the home ownership class leading up to this. Um, because of course, if they have gotten into the market, those headlines about home prices taking off, right. it is beneficial to them. They're building their fortunes and their wealth and they're able to help out their kids with down payments, closing costs, even you know some of the, the mortgage costs, if you will. But for the other set of millennials who have now, you know, gone through two economic downturns, hammering uh, this particular, you know, class of young workers more than other groups, and if their parents are lifelong renters, for whatever reason, haven't been able to get into the housing market, haven't been able to build their fortunes in the same way, it's a tough slog. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying then, if you were lucky enough to get into the housing market the first time you're probably going to be lucky enough to help your children to get into the market. Yeah. But if you didn't get in before, your kids today are also out of luck. That's right. And when you kind of think about what it means to be able to get into the housing market now without family help, I think it was a recent report put out by the National Bank of Canada and they crunched the numbers and they said for a household making a little under 200000 a year in Vancouver, it would take about 30 years to save up a down payment for an average home. And I mean, it's really, that's I, crazy. I remember what I was like at that age. That's yeah. a long time. That's crazy to think that, right? And, and even though interest rates are low, it's not giving a benefit right. to people to get into the market. It's helping people who've been building equity. And and back to those bidding wars, what realtors are telling me is that they have their, you know, would-be first-time home buyers up against uh, boomers a lot of the time who are downsizing and who have uh, been able to to profit from what's happening in the housing market. And they have quite a lot of money well over asking to be able to to offer for properties that would typically be looked at as, you know, a starter home, uh, maybe for for a couple looking to start out their life. Okay, so that's that's a good question then. So that whole bidding war situation where it just seems like it is exacerbating the problem, is that something that you also looked at? 
Uh, so not specifically in this piece, though it is a three-part series, and we may get into that in, in parts two and three. Um, and, and one thing I will say in terms of the, the bidding war situation, um, one of the economists that I had a conversation with in terms of how, you know, what's happening in housing is, is driving as a part of the increasing inequality and kind of this, the split fortunes paths that different types of households are walking and their children, their millennial kids. Um, and so one of the things that they said in terms of uh, policy suggestion and easy kind of low hanging fruit would be to get rid of the blind bidding process that yes. is possible where people are bidding against each other, but they don't know what exactly they're up against. And if you have that kind of feeling of FOMO, if you want to get in now before you may never have another chance, there is kind of this tendency to to bid high to make sure you get it. And what does that do? It really kind of distorts the process. Right, because you may not have needed to, to bid that high, right? It, it just right. For the homeowner, that's great. The person who's selling, <laughs> not so yeah. much for the buyers. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You bet. This is Mornings with Simi. Who doesn't love Trooper, right? Great song for a Friday. All right, Raji Stolhall is with us this morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Hey, Raji, would you feel comfortable getting on a cruise right now? Maybe in the next like couple of months? No. No. <laughs> Do you want to think about that for a second? Not a, no. <laughs> I just saw this story. So all. three Carnival-owned cruise lines announced yesterday that they are planning to resume sailing to Alaska with fully vaccinated passengers. And they're, so they're going to skip BC because that's that whole other story we've been talking about. But just this idea that they're, I'm sure that they're going to get inundated with people who want to go on this cruise. And I'm thinking, I don't know. Simi, can we back up for a minute and remember last year when cruise ships were literally stuck, unable to port with people who had the the virus and they were all just stuck there. I mean, I cannot imagine anything worse um, when you're trying to go on a vacation. So no, I think I would never get into any situation now where I could potentially be, be stuck in like a, like a way station, a way station on the water. And yet, so many of my friends are telling me their parents can't wait to go on cruises. Yes, and that's exactly what I have heard too from people where they're like, oh yeah, I'll definitely go. And I thought, but don't you remember? And also, I'm a bit claustrophobic at the best of times, but just the idea that you know if something does go wrong and they confine you to your rooms and you know the rooms on cruise ships are not big. It sounds awful. And you know, I know we're getting, uh, at least in Canada, we are we're getting the virus under wraps. We are getting vaccinated. We're all very lucky for all of that. But I just feel like it's way too soon to be jumping into situations like a cruise. I, just, I feel like that's just so far away. And, you know, I feel for the business owners that have missed business um, because people haven't been docking, haven't been coming to the ports and that kind of thing. On the other hand, um, cruise ships do have a terribly big and bad impact on the environment. And I wasn't even nearly close to becoming anything aware of that until the pandemic. And I started to read that um, they were just, they're hugely disruptive to the waters and to uh, the wildlife in the water. So yeah, I know we had talked to some researchers about that last year, that this was an opportunity essentially for researchers to see what kind of an impact, right? Without cruise ships going up and down the coast. It's a good question to ask people like, so they're saying they're going to start Alaska cruises again. Would you get on a cruise ship? 
let's say in 2021. So this year, if you were allowed to, would you book a cruise? Let me and Raji know. Uh, Simi at cknw.com. I have a feeling, Raji, that most people are going to say yes, they would. You think? I do. I think people are just lots of, first of all, lots of people love cruising. And I think Mm -hmm. they're just so anxious to go somewhere and do something that I think a lot of people would say, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm going for it. Because it's been a year and a half of being cooped up here at home. The other other thing is to me that in the best of times, cruises provide this kind of like Narnia. That's like, you know, (laughs) you go there and life is just totally different than it is on land, right? Yeah. Escapism. I think, yeah, totally. And I think so many people are eager for that escapism that they're just ready to throw caution to the wind and go for it. Um, but I would think it's significantly less than normal. So well, I'm curious we'll see. to hear from our listeners too. I am curious. Yes. Yeah. So are you willing to go on a cruise as soon as you can? Email us, simi at cknw.com. I also, this morning we were going to touch on this issue um, of the, the Princess Diana interview. Did you read the, this inquiry report? Ooh. It's so damning. It's awful. It's scathing. First of all, uh, the the show Panorama that aired the uh, famous Martin Bashir interview with Princess Diana, that was 25 years ago. But it's still like it's super etched into my mind. Maybe one of the first like media events I remember watching on television. It, over 23 million people in just the UK watched that broadcast. I don't know how many there were wild, worldwide world it's right but there were (laughs) (laughs) but there were there were a lot of people who were tuned into that and it was just so one-sided and it and there were no ethics we're realizing um, involved in bringing princess diana to agree to do that interview she was deliberately misled by the so-called journalist martin bashir he was in fact investigated at the time for manipulating um princess diana and they glossed um, it over. They kind of just it covered over. it. I think we have to give the shout out, the credit on this one to her brother, who for yes. years has continued to campaign and say this was wrong. The BBC did this and it was wrong. And it's because of him that they actually readed this inquiry and looked into it and now came to the conclusion that, oh, yeah, we we behaved very badly. Yeah. Off the top of the show, we played a clip uh, from Princess Diana's son, Prince William, um, in which he talks about how that show, that episode single-handedly fueled a conspiracy theory for the princess. And they did things like Bashir offered fake bank statements, alleging staff and friends. Were all paid off. Yeah, just unbelievable. As a journalist, what are reading this is just, I mean, my mouth was just... So was mine. I couldn't believe it either. So yeah, we'll hear more about that for sure. Um, Raji, thanks. We'll catch up to you later. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Premier John Horgan kind of let the cat out of the bag yesterday during the briefing with the media, saying that he expects some of the indoor dining restrictions to be lifted next week. Are restaurants ready? Well, for more on that, we're joined by Ian Tossenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian. Hi, Cindy. That was a sure change of direction fast, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. We just talked to you a couple days ago. So have you gotten the official word yet? Like, do restaurants actually know what's happening? Yeah, so our guidance to restaurants is saying you can open Tuesday. And the reason is, is that, and, and this was the trick yesterday, he didn't want to quite say it, and I, and we'll talk about it in a second, but um, at midnight on Monday, the health order that stopped restaurants from having in-store dining expires. So at 12.01 on Tuesday, and that he was implying that, um, you know, restaurants can be open. So um, 
I think the reason he didn't say it, SME, and we were saying the same thing, is we're really asking people to just have a very muted long weekend, and I don't think the Premier wants to get everybody excited too much. So we're saying, you know, enjoy a really muted long weekend, but we will be able to open on Tuesday. And you'll see that restaurants that have patios will likely be in a better position to open uh, quicker, obviously, because right. they've, they've been operations. It's the ones that haven't been, it's gonna, they're going to take a while. So what we're saying to the restaurant industry is go slow. Um, just, you know, there's no rush here. And we're saying to the public the same way is just be a little bit patient. It's going to take us some time to get our feet back on the ground. So are we talking about like reopening back to the way it was before, meaning still some restrictions, right? Like still yeah. separation, still size limits, all that kind of stuff. We haven't heard, but our counsel to industry is go back to where we came from five weeks ago. You know, we don't want to be, and I think you mentioned it this morning, is let's just, you know, t- turn it, just turn it all on and go crazy. Yeah. Is this just go back? Let's be very methodical about this. Let's keep the, the protocols in place. So you will see, um, you know, plexiglass and distancing and masks and all those things that are so important. And, um, and, and we're happy with that. I mean, we really are. I think the Premier will announce on Tuesday more measures in the future as to what happens with, you know, 10 o'clock closings and can you go with people outside of your bubble, all those different things. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll have a good start on Tuesday. So I'm sure some places will be open for breakfast. Baby steps, right? Baby steps. Um, okay, Baby steps, yeah. so it, we're talking about ordering of food. Uh, I guess we'll find out next week whether restaurants are able to find enough employees in some cases, because you mentioned that as a concern the other day. It's a big concern, and it's it's coming through uh, loud and clear in a survey that we're just undertaking right now. We're seeing that people, I think we talked about this, they're getting to about 50% of the targets, and so they're going to have to make some adjustments around that. And the way they do that is, through, you know, a simplified menu, you know, working on their hours of operation until they can staff up. So, yeah, you know, it just, it's in one way I'm going, it's only been five weeks, but it feels like five years. And then it's, and it's almost, uh, I got to tell you, a, a very prominent restaurateur in this city called me last night and he was cried. Oh. He was so grateful to have the opportunity, sorry, I'm going to cry too, but he was so grateful to have the opportunity to reopen and to welcome back as a guest. And I thought, well, and, and he is the epitome of doing it in such a responsible way. So this is, this is a, a watershed moment for us because, you know, I don't think that we'll ever close again. I think if we, we're gonna, we, and we are going to take the responsibility to make sure we do it right and do it methodical and do it in the safest manner possible. And we have to remember here, too, that once again, with BC saying this, uh, we're ahead of the game here when it comes to other provinces. Yeah, it's like we ran this race. I was always so proud to say we never shut, and then we shut. Now we can say, you know what, we're ahead of the game again just because, you know, I believe in the collective determination by our industry and the people that come to our restaurants. They did a great job, and and this is what we said. It'll serve us well, and we'll be able to do the things we want to do sooner. Okay, well, listen, best of luck, Ian. I know we'll probably be talking with you next week, but listen, good luck this weekend. <laughs> Have a great long weekend, and for everybody, just take it cool and get your vaccination. We'll see you Tuesday. All right. Thank you for that. That's Ian Tossenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. You heard him say it, right? You can expect that some restaurants probably open for breakfast on Tuesday for indoor dining. Going back to the level of restrictions that we had five weeks ago before this circuit breaker was put into place. So that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. still a limit on your group size. They still want you to just dine within your household, keep it as limited as possible. 
but getting things open again is a huge step for the restaurant industry. So, of course, we'll be talking about that next week when it happens. Not for the long weekend. It's for after the long weekend, right? 12.01 Tuesday. This is Mornings with Simi. Didn't take long for cruise ship companies to announce that they are ready to start cruising again along that Alaska route, except not stopping in British Columbia. Uh, We know the U.S. Senate has passed a bill called the Alaska Tourism Recovery Act that will allow ships to travel directly between the state of Washington and Alaska without making a stop in British Columbia. Now, that is a very valuable industry to us here. So potentially this is about to be signed into law. It's supposed to be temporary, but it's precedent setting. That's what the problem is here. And it means, you know, fewer tourists spending their money in this province. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Walt Judas, who's the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. How worried are you about the kind of progress that this bill has made? Well, very worried, in fact, because as you alluded to, this could become a permanent bill that uh, at some point in future is passed. They quickly got it this year uh, through the various channels in the U.S., and it shows to me how important it is in the United States to have a cruise, a vibrant cruise sector, and what's to stop them from suggesting this in future, because it can certainly help the cruise lines, and it certainly helps uh, Americans in particular, state of Alaska, the state of Washington. So I think, as you pointed out, it's it's precedent-setting. Hopefully it is only temporary, but there are fears that it could become permanent at some point down the road, and that would obviously be very detrimental to our cruise sector. Right. You said hopefully, right? But what do you know about what's being done behind the scenes at this point at the government level to change this? Well, I know there have been talks, particularly between the province and the federal government, to suggest a technical stop in British Columbia. That's been proposed for quite some time. The federal government has not responded, but uh, I do know, again, those talks have picked up within the last couple of weeks, which would essentially nullify the need for this legislation because cruise lines could stop in British Columbia without letting any passengers disembark, and that sort of renders the current act mute. So if those talks are successful, you could see that, but in the meantime, This bill is really only one signature away, and that's the president's office, from happening. And cruise lines, as you also referenced at the top, have already started to plan. Holland America has announced they are planning to cruise starting in July already with conditions. They still need some conditions by the CDC, uh, but they are are making plans now. And uh, so regardless, they'll go forward. I guess the other thing we can only hope for is that maybe the the cruise isn't as interesting to me if they can't stop in places like Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, If you're a cruise ship passenger, I think you you would love to see those cities, wouldn't you? Well, no question. And we're not suggesting that cruise is going to go away entirely. In fact, there are a lot of advantages sailing out of British Columbia to Alaska from Vancouver in particular. It's a day closer. Vancouver's port right in the downtown core. People love coming into the city. They get a chance to explore for the day. 
The cruise lines do have their berths lined up. And Victoria, even though it's not a home port, is also a popular destination. And I think you would see demand from cruise passengers to either leave from Vancouver or stop over in Victoria as part of that itinerary. It just bolsters the uh, Seattle to Alaska itinerary in particular to stop in Victoria. So, yes, we won't see crews go away entirely, but we do know that Seattle has been very aggressive over the years. They've expanded their cruise terminals several times, and the cruise lines like sailing out of Seattle because it's easy to get to, particularly for American passengers. So lots of competition to be aware of, but it's not going to go away entirely. It sounds, though, Walt, like there's a lot of frustration with the federal government, though, on this, right? Because this is obviously a very B.C. issue, uh, but a very important one to us here. Yeah, it's a B.C. issue, but, of course, cruise takes place across all of Canada. Even in Manitoba has a, a cruise sector, and, of course, in the east, Uh, It's also very vibrant. So the fact that the federal government earlier this year just unilaterally made a decision to close crews until February of 2022 was a major concern. Clearly, our cruise uh, sector, which supports a lot of jobs, uh, suggested, you know, a second year without crews is going to mean many more people lose their jobs. Many businesses could fall by the wayside. So could we look at this, and this is our recommendation, could we look at this in increments? Let's look at what's happening with vaccination rollouts. Let's consider every 30 days evaluating whether crews could continue at some point. That's the pitch we made to the federal government. They haven't necessarily responded in a formal way. But conceivably, you could still have a a truncated cruise season starting in the fall. But it takes two months for a cruise line to build that back up again and to begin. So there's still lots of work to be done. So do you feel a bit hopeful on that? That, like, I know they said 2022, but perhaps they can be convinced otherwise? Well, I'm hopeful, to be sure. But uh, I really don't know whether there is a possibility of that happening. Although, with this latest development in the U.S., that may compel the federal government to reconsider. And I really hope that's the message that the province is delivering to the federal government. What this shows to me is the importance of the cruise sector to places like Alaska and Washington State. The fact that they got this all the way up through the legislature in the U.S. and the president's about to sign, they care about the cruise sector. We need that signal from the federal government because it's such a vital part of our visitor economy. It really is. Walt, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC, holding out hope that really it's the federal government here who they need to have a kind of match lit under them to get things moving. This is a huge concern for BC. If this bill moves forward, it sets a precedent that cruise ships you know, don't have to stop in British Columbia on their way to Alaska. And as Walt pointed out, Seattle has been you know, working up towards something like this for a long time, you know, making things, improving things you know, for cruise ships in the port of Seattle. Uh, yeah, we need some action on this fast. So I had asked you, Raji and I had asked you this morning, are you ready to book a cruise? Are you ready to go back on a cruise? So three different cruise ships, cruise lines yesterday said that, yep, they're going to start planning for a resumption of Alaska cruises in July. For now, they're bypassing BC ports. But essentially, you could book an Alaska cruise in July. 
But are you ready to do that? There, it's fully vaccinated passengers. But it's more than about the fully vaccination to me. It's just the, you know, you get a little nervous just thinking about being in an enclosed space with so many people, right? And will you still wear masks? Will you not wear masks? What is the situation going to be? And it just, I don't know. Are you ready to do that psychologically? Get back on a cruise ship. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Let me know your thoughts on that. I mean, so far, the results I had from people were, yeah, they'd be willing to do it. They just need to go somewhere. They need to plan something, be hopeful about something in the future. You let me know your thoughts on that. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Last couple of days here on the show, we've been talking about the unbelievable spike in the price of lumber these days. It's causing a lot of concern in the construction industry. Obviously, it changes everything, budgeting, um, you know, even pre-sales, all of that. Like, how do you factor in this massive increase in your budget in this one section when it's so unpredictable right now? And then on top of that, you start hearing about these thefts. Vancouver police have confirmed they are investigating a spike in thefts from construction sites, particularly on the city's west side. They said at least seven construction sites have been targeted. And in one case, they specify thieves got away with more than $10,000 worth of plywood. To talk more about all of this and what's going on, Terry Sunderland joins us now, UBC professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Terry, thank you for being here. Uh, Good morning. Does it surprise you when you hear about like thefts of lumber? (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it does somewhat because, I mean, ultimately, you know, particularly at source, so you, you hear about trees being poached in, in recreation areas, in parks, <clears throat> areas, excuse me, areas that you think would be fairly well protected. But obviously the opportunistic uh, factor and the high value of, of lumber is, is driving uh, uh, this illegal trade. What kind of impact do you think these lumber prices are having? How do we find ourselves in here? That's a that's a really good question. Um, it's it's a it's a sort of perfect storm of, of conditions which has le- excuse me has led us here. Ultimately, you know we've we've seen um, a shortfall in um, production, so it's, you know shortage of supply. Uh, sawmills have been um, uh, affected in terms of the pandemic, in terms of having the labour in order to to um, produce the, the lumber we need. Yet at the same time, we've had a, a huge spike in demand. Uh, people are at home, they want to do home projects, lay a new deck, that kind of thing. Um, and also the building boom is, is, is problematic as well. So you, it's, it's basically a supply and demand issue. Um, there's not enough um, supply to, to fulfill the demand. So is there any way, though, in BC, given our forestry practices, that that supply issue is going to change anytime soon? Yeah, that's also a very good question. I, you know, there's this huge tension at the moment between... Uh, the need for logging and the need for for lumber, and we we need to manage our forests in a much more sustainable way. And, and what we're seeing at the moment is this tension between: do we conserve? Do we utilise? Um, and that's that's creating a lot of this uh, supply issue, I think, in many respects. But is there anything on the horizon that would suggest that this is going to change that? Because you think if there's lumber prices that are going up, you always think BC would normally benefit from that. 
Yeah, uh, um, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the problem is, is that we've we've got a, uh, a situation where the long-term prognosis for, for forestry has not really been sorted out. We have this tension between um, logging old-growth forests and we have an export market to the U.S. and to Asia. Um, and I think we need to look at make, maybe looking at the domestic market more uh, closely and ensuring that our domestic market is supplied um, as much as our external commitments. Does that does it look like any government is talking about that right now, though? I, I don't know. I'm, I, my, my research focus is primarily on the tropics. And so I, I've been involved in illegal logging all around the world. Um, and I'm amazed that it's an issue here in Canada where the forestry sector is so regulated, so controlled. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to see parallels with tropical forestry where we have human-wildlife conflict, illegal logging, tensions with indigenous uh, rights and access. Um, and those are mirrored here in Canada. It's, it's an amazing uh, uh, sort of mirror on the problems of forestry around the world. Right. So what's the difference in here from what we're hearing is, is so if you talk about like, you know, wood theft elsewhere in the world, is that unfinished logs? And here we're talking about like finished lumber. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's the main concern. Obviously a lot of the lumber that's being taken um, at source is, has to be processed. So how is it being processed without a stamp? You know, obviously all, all logs need to be stamped and, and confirmed that they've been harvested under license. Um, so obviously there's a there's a an issue with sawmills processing wood that hasn't been hasn't been stamped or, or maybe artisanal sawmills being set up, um, and so yeah there's a, there's a huge issue of of the production system, but the profits are so large that people are willing to take the risk. Right. So given your experience, then if the prices stay high, do you think these thefts are the kinds of things that we're going to continue to hear about? I'm I'm sure of it. I mean, log, uh, logging and illegal poaching has been uh, an issue in British Columbia for for a number of years, um, and not just during the pandemics. So, you know, all the time that these things are, are valuable and they're f- pretty much free and open access resources. You don't need much to extract them—a chainsaw and a pickup truck. Um, it's fairly low investment um, for high profits. So, of course, yeah, all the time that lumber prices are high. Right. It's going to be an issue. And the temptation is there for the buyers too, right? Because you just want to get your project finished and somebody's offering you cheap lumber. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you can actually access high-quality lumber as well. A lot of hardwoods are being taken out as well as softwoods uh, for more bespoke kind of projects as well. Well, Terry, I have a feeling we'll talk to you about this in the future. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. As Terry Sunderland, UBC professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Science. He studies the theft, like illegal logging, the theft of wood all over the world. But he said he never imagined he'd be hearing about it happening right here. And it is happening right here. In this case, finished lumber, like lumber on a construction site. Vancouver Police investigating numerous instances. And I've been reading a lot of stories, too, about small construction companies. This has really put a strain on small construction companies because they can't guarantee their projects. Therefore, they can't guarantee work to their workers. And all of this is simply supply issues. If you can't get the lumber to build something, then you can't go ahead and build that. And it's having a real trickle-down effect. Now, I, I would love to continue talking about this uh, for the next you know couple of weeks as this is going on. So if you have a story, if you have a connection to the construction industry, you have seen the impact of this lumber price problem firsthand, you know, talk to me about that. Simi at cknw.com. And I know that workers are being impacted, companies are being impacted. So let's tell your story. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You may have heard in the news that once again, there was a COVID-19 problem at one of the mink farms that we have here in BC. To talk more about this issue, joining us now is Sarah Dubois, the Chief Scientific Officer for the BC SPCA. Sarah, thanks for being here. Good morning, Timmy. Thanks for having me. Is this something that the BC SPCA kind of monitors as well? No, in fact, we do not have access to these farms. So they are overseen by the Ministry of Agriculture. And of course, the public health agency has been involved since the COVID outbreaks. That must make it very challenging for you, though, because you're dealing with the welfare of animals and there's a lot of concern about the welfare of these animals. There has been for a long time, and we have previously been on some farms for cruelty complaints. But overall, this industry is regulated by the government, and it is up to them to do inspections and to ensure that these animals um, are having, you know, at least a minimum standard of care that is required. But also, um, you know, now we are looking at this reservoir of COVID infection, unfortunately, in Mink, and we've seen this across the world. So I understand that the BCSPCA, along with some other groups, including the Union of BC Indian Chiefs and Infectious Disease Specialists, are kind of undertaking this campaign to talk more about this. Like, what do you want to see happen? We want to see a complete phase out of this industry, a buyout. Um, You know, there are less um, than 100 workers in British Columbia on these farms. There's 11 farms remaining. This is a dying industry. Um, Prices for fur are at their lowest. In fact, they really couldn't even sell the mink last year. And so we think that this is the right time to make that transition. And we want to support government to do that. Um, when infectious disease experts speak out uh, with the BCSPCA, this, is, I think, is a first. So, um, you know, this is a very unusual group of people who are all calling for the same thing. Right. So you think that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, perhaps that has illuminated the situation more? Absolutely. You know, there's always been concerns for welfare on these farms. And really, we shouldn't be calling them farms. You know, this is not a crop for production that's putting food on the table of British Columbians. This is an industry that is for luxury fur products that are sent overseas. So we've always had an issue ethically and and humanely uh, with the production of these animals. But now... When you have a risk of COVID-19 being, uh, you know, these animals can be asymptomatic, um, they can be symptomatic and also die from the disease. But now we just have this reservoir in the Fraser Valley, you know, in the hot spots of British Columbia, that is a drain on public health resources. So now we're throwing money at surveillance, constant surveillance of these farms. And that's in addition to the subsidies that we've been offering this industry. Okay, so then what can people do if they're nodding their heads listening to you, Sarah, what, uh, what can they do? It's time to call your MLA. You know, this is, we've gone beyond petitions. We've done the petitions. We've had over 20,000 supporters say, from the BCSPCA alone say this is ridiculous. You know, this is time to pick up the phone. Um, maybe you're not too busy this weekend and uh, call your MLA's office today or this weekend, leave a message, send them an email. You know, whether you're concerned about the make themselves, whether you're concerned about the health of, um, you know, your community because of the, this ongoing issue of of COVID-19 and and the danger that these farms present, or if you're just concerned about the subsidies, like this is ridiculous, $6.5 million since 2014 uh, has gone into the mink farming industry to to prop it up. All right. So is there a website people can go to, or you just want them to call their MLA? They can call their MLA if they are unsure how to do that. Of course, they can come to the BCSPCA's website, go to our Mink campaign page, and we'll link you through. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, this is this is the time where we should be saving public resources for, um, you know, the most necessary things to fight COVID-19. All right, Sarah, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you.
Sarah Dubois is a BCSPCA chief scientific officer. So the BCSPCA has now teamed up with other groups such as the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, the Infectious Disease Specialists, the Humane Society of Canada, uh, and they're campaigning essentially to tell the government that, listen, now is the time to put an end to mink farming in this province. They've had another COVID-19 kind of outbreak situation there. Uh, and you know what? This is something that it looks sounds like British Columbians support. Recent polls showing 85% of British Columbians opposed to killing animals for their fur. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I really enjoy it when uh, the people I work with on this show are able to teach me something that I've never heard of before, but it also makes me feel old sometimes. And I have a feeling that's what our Raji Sohal is going to be doing this morning. Hi, Raji. (laughs) Hi, Simi. Yeah, that's about to happen. I mean, when I learned about this, I felt old. There's a new term bouncing around and I don't want to lament, but I've read 10 articles in the last 48 hours on this. And that term is geriatric millennial. As if millennials were not already getting enough negative press, you know, we're the group that's expected to be pampered at every turn. And apparently we waste money on lifestyle luxuries like $8 lattes and travel and this kind of thing. But millennials have swiftly become the butt of jokes by Gen X on one side and then Gen Z on the other side. And this new term is causing a divide within the millennial generation itself. So millennial generation, um, the it's normally like 1980 to okay that's what i was wondering what what age yeah, group are we talking starts, about here but the geriatric millennials is like a micro generation so if you were born between 1980 and 1985 is the cutoff then you're considered one of these one of these olds and i don't know if you've been hearing this other term that's been floating around referring uh, to a lot of the choices of this age group as well which is chuggy oh yeah okay i've heard this so much over the last couple of weeks that I've actually started using it now because then I thought I shouldn't be using it because that makes me kind of chuggy. Yeah, you're using it. No, that makes you not chuggy that you're using it, that you're calling (laughs) other people out. It's good. So chuggy refers to someone that's out of date, someone who's trying too hard, someone who uh, loves friends memes, loves avocados on everything, owns a, a mug with some kind of empowering slogan like girl boss or tech daddy. And... (laughs) A telltale sign, get this, Simi, I was so embarrassed when I read this because I do it all the time. A telltale sign is using the laughing emoji when you text. I know so, so many people who do that, though. Uh, I send almost one like every text. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, like the way, I like the way your voice went up at the end there because you're like, I'm going to admit that I do this right now. Listen, I, I always see that, that, oh, it's people make fun of people who use emojis. But I think, well, I occasionally use an emoji. Does that I make me totally, emojis. completely out of date? Simi, I think it makes you efficient. You just acknowledge and recognize that you could express so much with an emoji rather than sitting there typing. You don't have time. You're a busy woman. Meanwhile, do you know what Gen Zers are using when they, they try to say something is funny? So they'll still use an emoji, but they're using like skull and coffin to mean it's so funny as in like dead funny. Oh, see, I'm so far behind this. So, so far. I have one of these. Um, I have one of that generation living in my house. It's my son. He's 21 years old. And I can't, like, everything I do, he thinks is old, that that I'm an old person. And he likes to tell me that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I denounce these attacks. I reject and denounce these attacks. I find that, um, of course, it's fun to, like, poke at every generation. But, man, millennials haven't been given a break since we came up. We're just... uh, the butt of everyone's jokes. 
So you are a geriatric millennial. I am. I am. And I've learned in the last month that like parting our hair to the side is tacky, even though like that just suits me. It doesn't suit me to put my hair okay. apart in the middle. I just remembered something vividly. You and I had this conversation on the show last week, right? I think where you yeah. told me that parting your hair on the side is now passe. It's passe. Didn't you feel attacked? I felt attacked. I felt attacked. And I remember you telling me that you've got to start changing. And I thought, I can't do that because I look hideous. I just want you to know that I actually went home and tried it. That I was like, you know, I'm by myself here. I'm just going to do this. I go into the yes. bathroom. I'm, I'm just going to check it out. Part my <laughs> hair down the middle. See what this looks like. I can't. Hideous isn't even a strong enough forward for what <laughs> that looked like, Raji. And I just went, that, that girl is crazy. Like, there is just no way I am doing this. <laughs> Well, and then our skinny jeans are cheeky too now. So, I mean, pretty much everything. Maybe the better way to go is to just accept these terms, embrace them, and just like, you know, ride out the rest of my life as now an, an old or olds, Gen Zers like to call uh, yeah, geriatric millennials. <laughs> you use these terms sometimes and I'm like, boy, do I feel old when she does that. So I feel like the millennials are the new group that everybody kind of makes fun of. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, we displaced the boomers. Um, I turned around and was like, hey, why aren't we making fun of boomers anymore? But no, it's it's all about the geriatric millennials. So now when I sign off on emojis or on text, whatever, for emoji, I'm going to use the one of the older lady with the gray hair and the bun on her head. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to own this now. You wait. Your kids are too young. You wait until they're a little bit older and they start telling you all the things that you're doing that are so wrong because kids love love telling their parents that you have a lot to look Uh, forward to oh no yeah you do uh thanks for that rachi thanks simi